Chapter Sixteen of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cheshire Cheese. Labor is the salt of the earth, and capital is the sworn foe to labor. Here, 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 with the clattering of many glasses and the smashing of certain pipes. Then the orator went on. That labor should be the salt of the earth has been the purpose of a beneficent creator. That capital should be the foe to labor has been man's handiwork. The one is an eternal decree, which nothing can change, which neither the good nor the evil done by man can affect. The other is an evil ordinance, the fruit of man's ignorance, and within the scope of man's intellect to annul. Mr. Ontario Moggs was the orator, and he was at this moment addressing a crowd of sympathizing friends in the large front parlor of the Cheshire Cheese. Of all those who were listening to Ontario Moggs, there was not probably one who had reached a higher grade in commerce than that of an artisan working for weekly wages. But Mr. Moggs was especially endeared to them because he was not an artisan working for weekly wages, but himself a capitalist. His father was a master bootmaker on a great scale, for none stood much higher in the West End trade than Booby and Moggs, and it was known that Ontario was the only child and heir, and, as it were, sole owner of the shoulders on which must some day devolve the mantle of Booby and Moggs. Booby had long been gathered to his fathers, and old Moggs was the stern opponent of strikes. What he had lost by absolutely refusing to yield a point during the last strike among the shoemakers of London, no one could tell. He had professed aloud that he would sooner be ruined, sooner give up his country residence at Shepherd's Bush, sooner pull down the honored name of Booby and Moggs from over the shop window in Old Bond Street, than allow himself to be driven half an inch out of his course by men who were attempting to dictate to him what he should do with his own. In these days of strikes, Moggs would look even upon his own workmen with the eyes of a Coriolanus, glaring upon the disaffected populace of Rome. Mr. Moggs Sr. would stand at his shop door with his hand within his waistcoat, watching the men out on strike who were picketing the streets round his shop, and would feel himself every inch a patrician, ready to die for his order. Such was Moggs Sr. And Moggs Jr., who was a child of capital, but whose heirship depended entirely on his father's will, harangued his father's workmen and other workmen at the Cheshire Cheese, telling them that labor was the salt of the earth, and that capital was the foe to labor. Of course they loved him. The demagogue who is of all demagogues the most popular is the demagogue who is a demagogue in opposition to his apparent nature. The radical earl, the free-thinking parson, the squire who won't preserve, the tenant who defies his landlord, the capitalist with a theory for dividing profits, the Moggs who loves a strike, these are the men whom the working men delight to follow. Ontario Moggs, who was at any rate honest in his philanthropy, 
and who did in truth believe that it was better that twenty real bootmakers should eat beef daily than that one so-called bootmaker should live in a country residence, who believed this and acted on his belief, though he was himself not of the twenty, but rather the one so-called bootmaker who would suffer by the propagation of such a creed, was beloved and almost worshipped by the denizens of the Cheshire cheese. How far the real philanthropy of the man may have been marred by an uneasy and fatuous ambition, how far he was carried away by a feeling that it was better to make speeches at the Cheshire Cheese than to apply for payment of money due to his father, it would be very hard for us to decide. That there was an alloy even in Ontario Moggs is probable, but of this alloy his hearers knew nothing. To them he was a perfect specimen of that combination which is so grateful to them of the rich man's position with the poor man's sympathies. Therefore they clattered their glasses and broke their pipes and swore that the words he uttered were the kind of stuff they wanted. The battle has been fought since man first crawled upon the earth, continued Moggs, stretching himself to his full height and pointing to the farthest confines of the inhabited globe. Since man first crawled upon the earth, there was a sound in that word crawl, typical of the abject humility to which working shoemakers were subjected by their employers, which specially aroused the feelings of the meeting. And whence comes the battle? The orator paused, and the glasses were jammed upon the table. Yes, whence comes the battle in fighting which hecatombs of honest laborers have been crushed till the sides of the mountains are white with their bones? and the rivers run foul with their blood? From the desire of one man to eat the bread of two? That's it, said a lean, wizened, pale-faced little man in a corner, whose trembling hand was resting on a beaker of gin and water. Yes, and to wear two men's coats and trousers, and to take two men's bedses and the weary whittles out of two men's bodies. Damn them! Ontario, who understood something of his trade as an orator, stood with his hand still stretched out, waiting till this ebullition should be over. No, my friend, said he, we will not damn them. I, for one, will damn no man. I will simply rebel. Of all the sacraments given to us, the sacrament of rebellion is the most holy. Hereupon the landlord of the Cheshire Cheese must have feared for his tables, so great was the applause, and so tremendous the thumping. But he knew his business, no doubt, and omitted to interfere. "'Of rebellion, my friends,' continued Ontario, with his right hand now gracefully laid across his breast, "'there are two kinds, or perhaps we may say three. There is the rebellion of arms, which can avail us nothing here.' "'Perhaps it might, though,' said the little wizened man in a corner, whose gin and water apparently did not comfort him. To this interruption Ontario paid no attention. "'And there is the dignified and slow rebellion of moral resistance. Too slow, I fear, for us.' This point was lost upon the audience, and though the speaker paused, no loud cheer was given. "'It's as true as true,' said one man, 
but he was a vain fellow, simply desirous of appearing wiser than his comrades. And then there is the rebellion of the strike. Now the clamor of men's voices and the kicking of men's feet and the thumping with men's fists became more frantic than ever. The legitimate rebellion of labor against its tyrant. Gentlemen, of all efforts this is the most noble. It is a sacrifice of self, a martyrdom, a giving up on the part of him who strikes of himself, his little ones, and his wife, for the sake of others, who can only thus be rescued from the grasp of tyranny. Gentlemen, were it not for strikes, this would be a country in which no free man could live. By the aid of strikes we will make it the paradise of the laborer, an elysium of industry, an Eden of artisans. There is much more of it, but the reader might be fatigued were the full flood of Mr. Mogg's oratory to be let loose upon him. And through it all there was a germ of truth and a strong dash of true noble feeling. But the speaker had omitted as yet to learn how much thought must be given to a germ of truth before it can be made to produce fruit for the multitude. And then, in speaking, grand words came so easily while thoughts even little thoughts flow so slowly but the speech such as it was sufficed amply for the immediate wants of the denizens of the cheshire cheese there were men there who for the half hour believed that ontario moggs had been born to settle all the difficulties between laborers and their employers and that he would do so in such a way that the laborers at least should have all that they wanted. It would be, perhaps, too much to say that any man thought this would come in his own day, that he so believed as to put a personal trust in his own belief, but they did think for a while that the good time was coming, and that Ontario Moggs would make it come. "'We'll have him in Parliament anyways,' said a sturdy, short, dirty-looking artisan, who shook his head as he spoke to show that on that matter his mind was quite made up. "'I dunno no good as is to come of sending such as him to Parliament,' said another. "'Parliament ain't the place. When it comes to the pint, they won't have em. There was Odges and Mr. Beale. I don't believe in Parliament no more.' "'Kennington Oval's about the place,' said a third. "'Or Primrose Ill,' said a fourth. Hyde Park, screamed the little wizened man with the gin and water. That's the ticket, and down with them gold railings. We'll let em see. Nevertheless, they all went away home in the quietest way in the world, and, as there was no strike in hand, got to their work punctually on the next morning. Of all those who had been loudest at the Cheshire Cheese, there was not one who was not faithful, and in a certain way loyal to his employer. As soon as his speech was over and he was able to extricate himself from the crowd, Ontario Moggs escaped from the public house and strutted off through certain narrow dark streets in the neighborhood, leaning on the arm of a faithful friend. Mr. Moggs, you did pitch it rather strong tonight, said the faithful friend. Pitch it rather strong? Yes. What good do you think can ever come from pitching anything weak? Pitch it as strong as you will. Find it don't amount to much. But about rebellion now, Mr. Moggs? 
Rebellion ain't a good thing, surely, Mr. Moggs? Isn't it? What was Washington? What was Cromwell? What was Rienzini? What was... was... But never mind, said Ontario, who could not at the moment think of the name of his favorite pole. And you think as the men should be rebels against the masters? That depends on who the masters are, Waddle. What good it come of it if I rebelled against Mr. Neefit, and told him up to his face as I wouldn't make up the books? He'd only sack me. I find thirty-five bob a week, with two kids and their mother to keep on it, tight enough, Mr. Moggs. If I had the fixing on it, I should say forty bob wasn't over the mark. I should indeed, but I don't see as I should get it. Yes, you would, if you earned it and stuck to your purpose. But you're a single stick, and it requires a faggot to do this work. I never could see it, Mr. Moggs. All the same, I do like to hear you talk. It stirs one up, even though one don't just go along with it. You won't let on, you know, to Mr. Neefit, as I was there. And why not, said Ontario, turning sharp upon his companion. The old gentleman hates the very name of a strike. He's almost as bad as your own father, Mr. Moggs. You have done his work today. You have earned your bread. You owe him nothing. That I don't, Mr. Moggs. He'll take care of that. And yet you are to stay away from this place, or go to that, to suit his pleasure? Are you Neefit's slave? I'm just the young man in his shop, that's all. As long as that is all, Waddle, you are not worthy to be called a man. Mr. Moggs, you're too hard. As for being a man, I am a man. I have a wife and two kids. I don't think more of my governor than another. But if he sacked me, where'd I get thirty-five bob a week? I beg your pardon, Waddle. It's true. I should not have said it. Perhaps you do not quite understand me, but your position is one of a single stick rather than of the faggot. Ah, me! She hasn't been at the shop lately? She do come sometimes. She was there the day before yesterday. And alone? She come alone, and she went home with the governor. And he? Mr. Newton, you mean? Has he been there? Well, yes. He was there once last week. Well? There was words. That was what there was. It ain't going smooth, and he ain't been out there no more, not as I knows on. I did say a word once or twice as to the precious long figure as he stands for on our books. Over two hundred for breeches is something quite stupendous, isn't it, Mr. Moggs? And what did Neefit say? Just snarled at me. He can show his teeth, you know, and look as bitter as you like. It ain't off because when I just named the very heavy figure in such a business as ours, he only snarled. But it ain't on, Mr. Moggs. It ain't what I call on. After this they walked on in silence for a short way, when Mr. Waddle made a little proposition. He's on your books, too, Mr. Moggs. Pretty tight, as I'm told. Why ain't you down on him? Down on him? said Moggs. I wouldn't leave him an hour if I was you. Do you think that's the way I would be down on, on a rival? And Moggs, as he walked along, worked both his fists closely in his energy. If I can't be down on him other gate than that, I'll leave him alone. But, Waddle, 
By my sacred honor as a man, I'll not leave him alone. Waddle started and stood with his mouth open, looking up at his friend. Base, mercenary, false-hearted loon, what is it that he wants? Old Neefit's money, that's it, you know. He doesn't know what love means, and he'd take that fair creature and drag her through the dirt, and subject her to the scorn of hardened aristocrats, and crush her spirits, and break her heart, just because her father has scraped together a mass of gold. But I, I wouldn't let the wind blow on her too harshly. I despise her father's money. I love her. Yes, I'll be down upon him somehow. Good night, Waddle. To come between me and the pride of my heart for a little dirt. Yes, I'll be down upon him. Waddle stood and admired. He had read of such things in books, but here it was brought home to him in absolute life. He had a young wife whom he loved, and there had been no poetry about his marriage. One didn't often come across real poetry in the world, Waddle felt. But when one did, the treat was great. Now Ontario Moggs was full of poetry. When he preached rebellion it was very grand, though at such moments Waddle was apt to tell himself that he was precluded by his two kids from taking an active share in such poetry as that. But when Moggs was roused to speak of his love, poetry couldn't go beyond that. He'll drop into that customer of ours, said Waddle to himself, and he'll mean it when he's a-doin' it. But Polly'll never have him. And then there came across Waddle's mind an idea which he could not express, that of course no girl would put up with a bootmaker who could have a real gentleman. Real gentlemen think a good deal of themselves, but not half so much as is thought of them by men who know that they themselves are of a different order. Ontario Moggs, as he went homewards by himself, was disturbed by various thoughts. If it really was to be the case that Polly Neefit wouldn't have him, why should he stay in a country so ill-adapted to his manner of thinking as this? Why remain in a paltry island while all the starry west with its brilliant promises was open to him? Here he could only quarrel with his father, and become a rebel, and perhaps live to find himself in a jail. And then what could he do of good? He preached and preached, but nothing came of it. Would not the land of the starry west suit better such a heart and such a mind as his? But he wouldn't stir while his fate was as yet unfixed in reference to Polly Neefit. Strikes were dear to him, and oratory and the noisy applauses of the Cheshire cheese, but nothing was so dear to him as Polly Neefit. He went about the world with a great burden lying on his chest, and that burden was his love for Polly Neefit. In regard to strikes and the ballot, he did in a certain way reason within himself, and teach himself to believe that he had thought out those matters. But as to Polly, he thought not at all. He simply loved her, and felt himself to be a wild, frantic man, quarreling with his father, hurrying towards jails and penal settlements, rushing about the streets half disposed to suicide, because Polly Neefit would have none of him. He had been jealous, too, of the gas-fitter, when he had seen his Polly whirling round the room in the gas-fitter's arms. 
but the gas-fitter was no gentleman, and the battle had been even. In spite of the whirling, he still had a chance against the gas-fitter. But the introduction of the purple and fine linen element into his affairs was maddening to him. With all his scorn for gentry, Ontario Moggs in his heart feared a gentleman. He thought that he could make an effort to punch Ralph Newton's head if they two were ever to be brought together in a spot convenient for such an operation, but of the man standing in the world he was afraid. It seemed to him to be impossible that Polly should prefer him, or any one of his class, to a suitor whose hands were always clean, whose shirt was always white, whose words were soft and well chosen, who carried with him none of the stain of work. Moggs was as true as steel in his genuine love of labor, of labor with a great L, of the people with a great P, of trade with a great T, of commerce with a great C, but of himself individually, of himself who was a man of the people and a tradesman, he thought very little when he compared himself to a gentleman. He could not speak as they spoke, he could not walk as they walked, he could not eat as they ate. There was a divinity about a gentleman which he envied and hated. Now Polly Neefit was not subject to this idolatry. Could Moggs have read her mind, he might have known that success, as from the bootmaker against the gentleman, was by no means so hopeless an affair. What Polly liked was a nice young man who would hold up his head and be true to her, and who would not make a fool of himself. If he could waltz into the bargain, that also would Polly like. On that night Ontario walked all the way out to Alexandria Cottage and spent an hour leaning upon the gate, looking up at the window of the breeches-maker's bedroom, for the chamber of Polly herself opened backwards. When he had stood there an hour, he walked home to Bond Street. End of chapter 16 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina